dementia is the sixth leading cause of death in the United States, and yet there remains much misunderstanding about what it is, how it behaves, and the family planning when a loved one is diagnosed. We're going to learn a lot more about this in just a moment. Hello, everyone. I'm Pamela Brewer, welcoming you to this edition of Mind Talk. And today's guest is Dr. Ann Kenny. Dr. Ann Kenny is an accomplished palliative care physician, a geriatric expert, and professor emerita at the University of Connecticut Health Center. Dr. Ann Kenny, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Dr. Kenny, you come to today's conversation not only as a physician, but as a family member. The dementia experience has been part of your personal lived experience. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes. Um, I have been a geriatrician for about 30 years and have taken care of families um, who are living with dementia and making decisions. And I thought my advice was probably okay until I um, started to live the journey with my mother who developed dementia about 10 years before she died. Um, She was able to live home alone independently for quite a long time, lived very well with it. But as she um, progressed further, she had a stroke towards the end um, and she came and lived near me so that I saw her every day and began to really understand the many decisions that have to be made for somebody who's lost their voice to dementia when it's progressed to that stage. And then I really understood what people had been asking me all those years and, and the guidance I could have used to help them more. But I really learned it by taking care of my mother. Um, I think she did very well in her last couple of years of life because I knew some things to avoid. And when I looked for guidance to help my brothers and sisters in that last phase of her life, I didn't find anything. And so after she passed, I thought I would like to pass on my experiences, both as a daughter living with somebody at the end of life with dementia and my experience as a palliative care physician as well. And that was the beginning of the creation of making tough decisions about end-of-life care in dementia, yes? Yes, absolutely. You described... I'm sorry, it's filled with stories from many families besides my own, but but each chapter begins with my family's story. Um, But, again, I've had 30 years of living with other people's Um, questions and concerns and so I tried to thread those throughout the book to be be helpful for other situations. There there are a couple of things I I want uh, to get out of the way before we really get more deeply into uh, making the tough decisions. You describe yourself as a palliative care physician. What does that actually mean? Um, It it's the it's a philosophy around care choices. Um, You can I personally believe that I believe in palliative care for everyone. Um, If I have a headache, not only do I wonder what the cause of my headache is, but I want to do something to improve my quality of life with it, whether that be uh, taking a hot bath or or taking some ibuprofen. Um, But 
it's that piece, that part where I try to improve my quality of life, um, as well as any other interventions. Um, so it's more, it's broader, in my opinion, than medicine per se, or medications, um, and it's a philosophy. But we usually think about it towards the end of our life when we stop making choices to extend our life and start making choices about living more by our values and contemplating, do I want to, to choose plan A or plan B based on how I feel rather than will it make me live longer? And so when one goes into hospice care, does that mean that one is being treated by a palliative care physician or no? Usually um, there is a palliative care physician or approach. Um, The nursing staff, the social workers, the physician may not be certified in palliative care per se, but but likely hospice is a... um, a subset within the palliative care approach, but that's the, the philosophy that underpins hospice care. So that at the end of your life, at the very end of your life, you're being treated for comfort, for quality, to make sure that any goals and dreams you have can be fulfilled or that every day is the best day that you can have at whatever situation you're in. Now, uh- Another piece I'd just like for you to explain uh, to us, many people uh, think of uh, dementia and Alzheimer's as being the same thing, is it? Um, Alzheimer's disease is the most common type of dementia. Uh, Dementia is an umbrella term for several conditions that um, begin usually with loss of memory or a change in your thinking ability and then proceed, they're all neurodegenerative progressive conditions so that that means that they march on. None of them have a cure, unfortunately, so that they will uh, end in death ultimately. Um, Most of them are very long-term, ranging in time from 5 to 15 years on average. Um, But... Alzheimer's is the most common type. It is about 70% to 80% of the uh, times people with dementia have Alzheimer's. It can also come from uh, conditions such as uh, mini strokes or many multiple mini strokes. Uh, It can be uh, associated with Parkinson's disease, for example, or um, with multiple traumas. Uh, For example, Muhammad Ali had Parkinson's light condition and a a memory loss that was associated with um, multiple traumas is another example to the brain. So when someone is diagnosed with having some form of dementia, it's clear that that person, whether it's short-term or long-term, is definitively approaching the end of their life. Yes. When you're first diagnosed, Um, and I don't think we do this very well yet in this country, but we should begin. There's many years of of good life left when you have dementia, but there is a point when it begins to affect things other than just your memory, um, and it will start to affect your ability to walk, to swallow, 
Um, and when it gets to that phase, then we know that you're approaching the end of your life. You, the life expectancy at the time when you begin to not be able to walk successfully is usually about one year. Huh. Okay. All right, let's go back to uh, the, uh, the work that you have created in making tough decisions about end-of-life care in dementia. You say that there are early and mid-stages, which I think that we've sort of been talking about, uh, and that many of the typical activities in the late stages uh, are the hallmarks of severe disability. Is there anything... Uh, in addition to the swallowing and perhaps the walking difficulties, is there anything else that one might expect to see in the late stage of dementia? As people progress, um, they're less likely to communicate um, verbally. They become less able to make their wishes known. Um, they may begin to sleep much more. Um, it takes a lot of energy to try to pay attention to what is happening around you and process it if you can't remember things bit by bit or, or there are these loss of connections in our brain. Um, so the way around that is frequently sleep. Um, and uh, toileting becomes an issue. They may no longer be able to toilet successfully on their own. Um, uh, again, walking, swallowing, so that they'll begin to lose weight because they're not swallowing effectively. Mm. Many people develop things like pneumonia or urinary tract infections. Again, as they are unable to swallow, food may food or, or spit may go into their lungs and cause an infection. Um, we don't urinate as well. There's not the force that can clean out the urinary tract. And so you may develop a urinary tract infection. And that infection will then potentially make the thinking process even worse. So it may cause lots of confusion, maybe some aggression, uh, maybe much more somnolence. It, everyone is individual and they're, they're the way they go, but the, the trends are similar. Okay. Dr. Ann Kenny, we're going to take a break, and when we come back, we will continue discussing ways to make tough decisions about end-of-life care and dementia. Don't go away, folks. We'll be right back. Dr. Kenny, doctors by and large are really trained to cure and to heal. So how do you as an individual trained to cure and heal make the transition to essentially helping a patient to die in as peaceful a way as they can? Yes. I, I think that um, you're absolutely correct the medical society is trained to heal. And many doctors don't necessarily do that transition well. Although most subspecialties have something in their, um, their usual caseload that, that does require that shift. Um, for example, cardiologists are often dealing with heart failure or 
pulmonologists are dealing with people with lung, uh, chronic lung disease uh, from smoking, for example. Um, but, but we aren't well trained in that area. I, I came by it um, in geriatrics because as people age, there is a point where doing more, and it was the frail individuals who told me that this isn't worth going through. This isn't worth living. And I think um, it was the cancer movement in the 1950s where it was the individuals who were living with the disease that said, no, I don't want to do everything that you have to offer. And it was that group, I think, that really started to educate the medical community that we should be offering choices, not necessarily always going for a cure. Um, so I give a lot of credit to the, the hospice movement that was created by individuals with cancer. My, my issues with um, dementia are that individuals who have dementia are unable to speak that truth at the end of their life because the disease has taken away their ability to, to process and think clearly um, and if they haven't talked about that issue prior to their uh, end, you know, before kind of the late middle stages, they, we may not know what they want. Um, so I'm not sure that physicians are in a place to be helping family members yet. I think we are making a movement that way. I think um, recent books, uh, such as Atul Gawande's Being Mortal and, and different um, Activities such as a program called Death Over Dinner or the Conversation Project are trying to move society into talking more about, about death. But I think when you have a diagnosis, it's not the first place you go. You're trying to find hope in your day-to-day. -day. But research shows that individuals who have dementia would be willing to talk about um, end-of-life choices. We're just not offering those choices, either as physicians or as family members. Um, I'm hoping that our society is shifting a bit because uh, like you say, having a peaceful death is, is what most of us want. 90% of us choose comfort and peace. Um, and 10% and of us would always choose life and, and that's also fine. But the medical community usually offers, let's do everything to try to prolong life. And sometimes that decision to prolong, I would suggest, is more for essentially the living than it is for the person who's actually dying. I, I agree. I think we all um, don't necessarily want to lose the, the physical form. But if we start talking about death from an emotional um, and a spiritual place, more than just the physical, we can see that, that death is, just the natural process. And I think we were better at this in the early 19th century when death was more in our day-to-day. -day. Hmm. Um, but now in the 21st century, we have ICUs and we have um, medications for, for everything. And um, we, we value youth more than old age, um, in the United States anyway. And so, yeah, I think we're always trying to kind of race time. But it, that leads to this a sense of depression and, and angst that may, may not be needed. You mentioned the death over dinner uh, movement. What is that? Um, a, 
a gentleman, and I'm, I'm blanking on his name right now, uh, was on a train with two physicians uh, going between New York and Boston and was having a conversation about them, about how little we talk about death. Um, he was a, he's a restaurateur and a, a kind of an innovative thinker. And he thought, I think we should just start um, bringing people together with the idea over dinner and maybe some libations, uh, start talking about death. And so um, he has developed a little, uh, there's a website and he's developed uh, a little toolkit to help people have these conversations. What would you want at your death? What would make your death a good death? Uh, just what, and have everyone start discussing it and then hopefully go to an action plan of documenting a little bit of it and, and telling the right people in your life what you would want. Um, but at least destigmatizing and demystifying the, the conversation. Um, and and they, they've gone over very well. So, and that website is deathoverdinner.org, O-R-G. Yes. What would you say would be a key piece of advice as you're talking or as you're guiding family members uh, in terms of approaching a conversation about end-of-life care with a loved one who may have resisted those conversations endlessly? Um, I would say that maybe not talking about death per se, but beginning the conversation about values and talking, beginning the conversations about what would your legacy be? What, what are your hopes and dreams? <coughs> and probably first, considering a lot of the questions you might ask for yourself before you bring it up. And then it can be a true dialogue where you're sharing back and forth. Um, once you talk about values, then it seems more natural to say, oh, how would that value play out if this were to happen? Um, say you were to become ill, how would, how would that value play out in your day-to-day -day, um, as you proceed through that illness? And I think when we, when we base these conversations more in hopes and dreams and values, it makes the death part not as frightening because if you can see that you're going to live very well through those hopes and dreams to the very end, um, death becomes less frightening. It's about living um, in the moment rather than fearing the final. In making tough decisions about end-of-life care, you offer a scale of dementia pro uh, progression. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that scale? Yes. I um, When I'm evaluating people, I'm often looking at their function, um, and there's a functional assessment scale test in dementia that, that gives seven stages. <laughs> Excuse me. Um, and the first few are just stage one through five, which is when you first begin to notice some memory loss that does not affect your day-to-day um, -day function, and then will progress to the point where you have um, inability to maybe do your banking at stage five. But then at stage six and seven, when you're getting to the middle and late stages of dementia, the functions will become more expanded out. So there'll be a six A, B, C, and D, for example, where you're unable to 
to coordinate your clothing. You may be picking summer clothing rather than winter clothing in winter time, um, which could put you in some danger. You're no longer able to go out and coordinate shopping for your own food or cooking your own food. Um, you can no longer use the telephone, for example, in stage six. And towards the end of stage six, you're no longer able to successfully um, use the toilet without assistance. Um, so you may need prompting to get to the toilet on time. You may need help with cleaning yourself after using the toilet, examples like that. In stage seven, when we're in the late stages of dementia, it's where we start noticing that you've lost your ability to speak, your ability to walk independently. You may need assistance in your walking to the point where you can no longer um, <clears throat> or walk at all. And then in the very end stages, it's the point where you can no longer hold your head up or even smile. So much less engagement in the, in the world around you. And how aware is the person uh, with dementia of the changes in his or her functioning? Do they know what's going on? Do they recognize um, the difference within themselves? Often in the beginning stages, um, it depends on, on the part of everyone is different, but it depends on the part of the brain that is most effective in an individual. Um, a lot of times they may not have insight into the, their, their um, disabilities or their uh, losses and will be resistant to any changes. Sometimes they know something's wrong and it will cause a, a, a bit of a depression that can um, be be treated with both talk therapy and medications to get them back to better functioning um, if they're open to that. Uh, at the later stages, it, there can be quite a bit of distress in some people. We do believe that is because they have a sense that their needs are going unmet or that they're distressed by their condition, but not everyone goes through the, that phase. So it, it's very individual. Dr. Ann Kenny, author of Making Tough Decisions About End-of-Life Care and Dementia. We're going to take a very brief break, and then we will be right back. Dr. Kenny, you have a chapter uh, entitled Active Dying. What does that mean? Um, at the very end of life, in the last few hours to days, people will transition to, into what um, physicians call active dying. Um, the chapter is to try to help people know what might be coming. Um, but, and, and to... Not everyone has seen death in the 21st century like, like they did earlier. But it's the stage where people's breathing may begin to change it, into um, a more rhythmic breathing where they begin breathing slowly and then a little more rapidly. Um, and then 
and then slowly again and, and maybe stop breathing for several seconds where the, the, the blood supply to their hands and feet starts to change so that they get kind of a lace-like pattern around their hands and feet. Um, and uh, more and change it and physical changes like that so that people understand when the end is near and what we can do to help at that stage. And just to, to know that all those things are relatively normal. Dr. Kenny, there's so much more uh, that you talk about in your book. Is there a way uh, for folks to learn more about your work and about your your book? Yes. Um, my, my book is available um, at usual book distributors such as Amazon.com or BarnesandNobles.com. Um, my website is Ann Kenny, A-N-N-E-K-E-N-N-Y-M-D.com. Um, and uh, I think the Johns Hopkins University Press website also has a link to the book. All right. So there are certainly places to go to get more information. Very quickly before we leave, you talk about the importance to frequently reevaluate goals of care. What do you mean by that? I think that um, when we decide on a goal for what we would like the outcome to be for an individual, it's much easier to make these multiple decisions that people will ask you to make in the name of someone else. And if you know what the goal is, it helps you orient quickly to what the right answer is for those day-to-day-to-day questions. If you think um, somebody says your mother has some bleeding, should we do something about it? Um, Or what should we do about it? If you know that her goal was to um, end her life peacefully, you may say, no, let's just try treating symptoms rather than going off to the hospital and doing a full evaluation. But if her goal was to live as long as possible, then it's easier to say, yes, let's, let's see what's the cause of that bleeding and, and see if we can stop it. Um, so if you, and, and it could be that at a stage where someone is in the middle stages of their dementia and are enjoying their life, enjoying their grandchildren, for example, having, um, relishing every meal that they have, your goals may be different than if, if an individual has progressed to a stage where they are mostly sleeping and they are not seeming to enjoy the times when they're awake, you, your actions, your answers to questions that the medical community will come and ask you or that, that, that nursing community may come and ask you may be completely different. And so it's good to say, um, because when you're living it with somebody who's progressing through the disease, sometimes you forget to stop and take stock of where, where are you? Because, because you're in the middle of, of a, uh, a very sometimes overwhelming caregiving state. Um, and it's, so it's nice to think at the end of every month or at the end of every season or, you know, at least twice a year, I'm going to kind of look at my parent, my spouse, my sibling in, with, new, with fresh eyes and see what are our goals today. Makes sense. Dr. Ann Kenny, again, author of Making Tough Decisions About End-of-Life Care and Dementia, thank you so much for the work that you're doing, and thank you so much for the time you've spent with us today. 
Thank you. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. And folks, thank you for joining us on this edition of Mind Talk. Mind Talk is brought to you daily as an educational public service, and it is not intended to replace any work that you might choose to do with a medical or mental health professional. Mind Talk is available to you on demand by going to mynndtalk.org, and there are several other platforms where you can find Mind Talk. All of that information is at the Mind Talk website as well. If you'd like to be in touch, Please email me at Pamela, P A M E L A, at mindtalk.org, M Y N D T A L K.org. And folks, remember always if it's unacceptable, it's unacceptable. Take care. Thank you.